0: Hi again, everyone. I'm Tim Yuma. Thanks for checking out localjobnetwork.com radio and our podcast management decisions. We're focusing on helping employers in a variety of ways. And today we're tackling the idea of innovation and really trying to break through the innovation myth that many do succumb to. To talk about this subject, we have Tom Kulopoulos on the phone with us. He is the author of 10 books, including his latest one, The Gen Z Effect. He's also the founder of the Delphi Group, which is a 25-year-old Boston-based think tank and it focuses on innovation and the future of business. Of course, perfect for what we're discussing in this episode. Obviously, innovation is this huge buzzword people use all the time. I've seen it the last couple of years on the most overused words list. What does it mean to you, though? What, how do you describe or define innovation, or how does your company even define it?
1: So, Tim, I, I try to be very simple-minded about what innovation is. And the best way to think of innovation is anything that adds value. And we can really leave it at that level of simplicity. I think folks try to complicate this far too much. So it could be a product, it could be your iPhone or your mobile device, or it could be an idea, how to change a process, how to do something different inside the organization with customer service. So anything that adds value, in my mind, is innovation. But that word value is a big word. And the problem is that folks don't always measure the value. They stop at the idea. An idea isn't an innovation. An idea is Mm. just an idea. And we're littered uh, with ideas, personally, professionally. What we need to do is ask the question, what value has that idea created? And that's the moment at which an innovation is born, is when it creates value.
0: Well, and I like you mentioned that there. First of all, the idea that people complicate this a little bit, but also this sort of convoluted thought of what innovation really is. Talk about how you deem the innovation myth and what that is and, and what you see people doing with innovation.
1: So the one thing I've heard repeatedly during my entire career, and it's, it's sort of a, a mantra, I think, that we all to some degree subscribe to, I did for, for a long period of time, is this notion that we're all just one idea, whether we as individuals or we as our organizations, we're just one idea away from enormous success. And the fallacy in that, the mythology, is that it's not the idea, it is the execution of hmm. the idea that creates success. So you know, I know everyone listening to this podcast, as have I, as have you, has either been watching something on TV or on YouTube or has walked down the aisle of their local grocery store and has said to themselves, geez, I had that idea. If only I had, I had you know, if <laughs> yeah. I had that idea, why couldn't I have been the one that made a million dollars? And the answer is, you didn't make a million dollars because all you had was the idea. Ideas sort of ignite spontaneously in, in thousands, perhaps millions of minds across the globe it's the person who executes on the idea. And that's where innovation gets hard. The heavy lifting is not in coming up with the idea. We all love to think it is. The heavy lifting is in making that idea something that the market wants to use, that they want to embrace. You know, we forget that when Apple came to market with the iPod, it was 2001, not a Great economic climate, right? And the iPod was land based. It entered the market at a time when there were plenty of MP3 players. I mean, everyone at that point had some sort of a MP3 device. So it was a very crowded marketplace. What they did is they defined not just the product that had already been done Mm -hmm. by a lot of people in the marketplace. They defined a new problem, and they gave us a reason to need their device as opposed to what was already available. And at that time, who would have thought that the revolution? That's occurred. We all have our personal soundtracks today, right? Who would have thought the revolution that, that occurred over the over the last uh, fifteen years would have been as extensive as it has been and changed our behaviors so much? And I think that's the magic of innovation. It's the execution. It's creating a new problem that we didn't know we had, and then giving us a reason to solve that problem. That's that's heavy lifting. That's tough work, sure. uh, and it takes time. It's a process. It doesn't happen overnight the way. We often, in the mythology of innovation, we often believe this happens suddenly like a bolt of lightning. It doesn't. It doesn't. It's a very slow simmer over a long period of time.
0: I think that's a great point because, especially from the consumer side of things, all we see essentially is that final product. And it's like, wow, where did this come from? But to your point, it's years in the making in a lot of cases to really develop it and, as you say, execute that heavy lifting.
1: Not just that, but what we fail to sometimes recognize is that not only has the product changed and evolved in that period of time, but our behaviors have changed mm. and evolved. And real innovation, the, the real powerful innovation, and let's keep on the topic of the, of the iPod, that kind of innovation, it changes the way we behave. Sure. And I grew up, uh, and I'm, I'm sure you did too, at a time <laughs> when before MP3 players, when you know, we walked around with boom boxes and Walkman cassette players. And this whole notion of going in public with headphones on was absurd. I mean, no one would do that because it wasn't socially acceptable and it just wasn't a smart thing to do. Suddenly, we all walk around with earbuds in. Uh, we're oblivious to the world around us. Uh, we talk to people in the ether. We wave our arms as though magically someone was, was, uh, was there with us and they're not. These are very strange behaviors. And the behavioral change is the real indicator of great innovation. When we change so much that when we look back, we say, how did we ever get by without that? How did we behave when we didn't have that technology? When you start asking that question, that's when you know innovation has really happened on a large
0: scale. That is a fantastic perspective. I think just the idea that you said there—the change in behavior and really the acceptance of that behavior too—I think that's that's phenomenal. And uh, as you said, then you know you're really onto something there. Well, let's let's get into it a little bit as far as this idea of breaking free from that innovation myth, especially talking about organizations who maybe are trying to really be on the cutting edge of innovation or you know coming up with that next great thing, so to speak. One area that you mentioned, and I think people, of course, always bring this up, is the idea of risk and not really knowing what to do or what's going to be in the future, how do you address that? How do you come up with the ideas of, hey, you should go forward with something that you don't know about? Where do you even start when it comes to that?
1: That's a great question, Tim. And it's the type of question that I think companies often don't ask enough. This question of how do we deal with the uncertainty of the future? We like to be able to predict. Mm -hmm. It's what we, we want to do that as human beings. And as organizations, we want to do that because we want to mitigate risk. We want to cap the downside of, of risk. But what happens organizationally, and this is a very, very important lesson to learn, and I've, I've seen this play out all too often in large corporations with very, very smart people, what happens all too often is that at a very senior level, usually at the level of the CEO, the message goes out to mitigate risk, to put a cap on risk. And I heard one CEO of a large multi-billion-dollar company once in an all-hands meeting with all of his execs say at the very end of the meeting, it was a meeting about innovation, by the way. So just to give you some context, (laughs) at the the end of the meeting, he said, now, I just want you to know we had a great meeting, but keep in mind that in this industry, we have an unlimited downside, but a fairly limited upside. Hmm. Now, what do you think that does to innovation? It says to everyone, if you take the wrong step, you're going to fall off a cliff and we're all doomed. That's the kind of attitude that unfortunately creates the the behavior of avoiding risk and avoiding the uncertainty of the future and going only for those things that are certain. And while you can do that and be incrementally successful over time, that will catch up with you. And the reality is that you have to place bets. Sometimes they're outlier bets. Uh, Sometimes they're they're, uh, bets the way a hedge fund would place a bet on things that have a, a very remote chance of success, but you have to place those bets on a continual basis. And the way to do that is to create a function within the organization that actually plays in the space of uncertainty, but plays within some kind of limited capacity. So I call this an innovation zone. An innovation zone is just a part of your organization that is constantly placing bets on uncertainty. And Hmm. the bets are limited by budget. You'll apply a certain amount of money to that function. And over time, it's more than likely that you'll increase the amount of money that you're investing in that function. Now, I've seen companies. Like one large institution here in the Northeast that uh, provides healthcare through a, a number of, of hospitals, very large hospitals here in the in the Northeast. Uh, Partners Healthcare actually put in place an innovation zone with just two people, and did this about 15 years ago. Okay. Over the course of 15 years, it's grown to over 100 people. Wow. And they today make over 300 million dollars a year <laughs> in the investments. this innovation zone it began with just two people and the whole purpose of it is just to find outlier ideas that they can invest in uh, ideas that otherwise would either evaporate or go someplace else to find a, a to find a home so that having that very simple function of an innovation zone actually addresses directly the question you asked which is how do we deal with uncertainty well you deal with uncertainty in a very strategic way you put in place a function that is tasked mm-hmm. with investing in these uh, these outliers. Look at Kodak. I mean, if Kodak had done the same thing with digital photography, right. it would have been sitting on top of a gold mine today rather than having gone bankrupt. So companies inherently want to take the road which is secure, which has less risk, and we understand that. As stockholders, as stakeholders, we want them to do that. But at the same time, place bets in those areas and, and place bets that will thrive, not That have to exist in your culture but are outside of the culture the innovation zone doesn't live within the culture of the organization it's a separate function and as such it is not held back by the legacy of the organization or by all the innovation antibodies that often exist as was the case with with kodak
0: i think that definitely is an interesting perspective as you said separating it so that you're almost allowed to be in that space because i'm sure those listening can say hey I have to worry about the day-to-day. I don't even have time to innovate or if I do try to take that risk, obviously there are going to be some negative points to that. So I think that's a great perspective to give those employers listening. Along those same lines, that idea of failure, what is your take on failure and its importance when you're talking about true innovation?
1: We have to compartmentalize failure because the, the reality is we can't make a blanket statement. There are parts of your organization where you simply cannot fail. Right When you're getting onto an airplane to fly coast to coast, there are certain things that, that cannot fail. Sure. That they have to work precisely. They have to work every single time. Right. And they have to have backup systems that are in place in the event that they fail. So we have to compartmentalize failure. And think of it not in terms of broad statements and platitudes, but think of it in terms of how do I create areas within my organization where failure is tolerated there's two ways you can do that one way is to limit the failure by giving it a scope so i actually counsel uh, ceos and leaders to provide their people with a definition of what is an acceptable failure what does it mean to fail acceptably in terms of dollar amount in terms of impact uh, to the customer perhaps Uh, in terms of time invested if you define it in such a way that there is an acceptable zone of failure People will try, they'll play, their, they'll experiment within that zone. And it's amazing because most folks just don't do that. They don't think in terms of acceptable failure. They, right. they take a broad brush of the, the, you know, the big platitude and say, failure is either great or failure is terrible and we live in, in the black and white. Failure doesn't, doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. You have to compartmentalize it. The second way to compartmentalize it is to say, look, let's take, going back to our I-zone function, let's take our innovation zone function and give it a certain territory within which it has the right to experiment and to fail. So let's go back to our friends at Kodak and digital photography. If they had taken digital photography and put it into its own organization and said, look, you can live or die by your own merits, not based on ours," they might very well have had something there over time that they could have bet very big on. Uh, But they didn't. It was part of the the ecosystem, it wasn't separated out. It wasn't compartmentalized. And as a result, it couldn't thrive in that ecosystem. There's no way it could live under the canopy of, of Kodak's uh, jungle. There was, it, couldn't, it couldn't survive in that kind of an environment. So you have to give failure a scope and you have to compartmentalize. And if you do that, then you can have what, what I call acceptable failures. And occasionally, those acceptable failures will turn to some pretty big bets that the company wants to make. And it will make those bets when it's a bit more certain about the reality of the marketplace and its likelihood to accept a product or a, or a service. But that's the way to, to do it. And when you think of big companies like Apple, who mm-hmm. have magnificent success, the reality is Apple has changed its path many times because it's had to uh, over the years in terms of the design of the product and in terms of uh, the, the form factor in the marketplace. Lately, Apple's taken a lot of heat for going to a large form factor with its phone but that's called flexibility. Mm-hmm. That's called moving with the market. So even uh, icons like, like Apple do this. They define what acceptable failure is and then they move with the market and it's a dance. As the market evolves, so does the product, so does the company. And if you're astute enough uh, and you make those small bets and you define what is an acceptable failure, you will move forward. If all failure is bad, you'll stand still. Uh, you will not move forward. Uh, you might get dragged along by the rest <laughs> of your marketplace, but you, you certainly won't be a leader. And over time, you won't be the innovator in that space. And that'll catch up with you. It always does.
0: Another area that intrigued me a little bit, obviously, look to you to explain a little bit further, was the idea of focusing on the process and not necessarily the product. How can that be more effective? How does that lead to better innovation as opposed to being in love, I guess, with the product itself?
1: It's a hard thing to do, especially for a startup. Startups right. tend to fall in love with their product, and it's, it's very difficult to separate the product from the process. But as the organization grows, as the need to make innovation systemic, to make it part of what you do day in, day out, becomes more of, a, of an issue. And as organizations grow, by the way, they tend to stifle innovation because there's regulation, mm-hmm. there are procedures, there are all kinds of things that will conspire against you when you try to innovate what they need to do is take a step back and think about what process do we have in place by which these ideas that we were just talking about, the front end of innovation, which doesn't add value, what process do we have by which we can take these ideas and actually create value from them? And usually the only answer you get is, well, that's the job of R&D. Well, what if it's an idea that Uh, for whatever reason, can't take root in R&D? What if it's an idea that is not about engineering or about the product, about customer service perhaps, or about an internal process? Unfortunately, those ideas don't have a process that can take them from idea to value. And again, I go back to this notion of having in place a function whose responsibility it is to do that. So let's go to Partners Healthcare, which I brought up a little earlier. One of the uh, iconic examples that they use, and they've had great successes, Enbrel, by the way, the great drug Enbrel was one of their successes. They've had many others. But one of the smallest successes they have is the iconic one that they use to talk about the process of innovation. And it's an inclinometer that goes on the side of a bed, a hospital bed, so that you can make sure that the patient is inclined at the right angle. And the reason for this is that, especially when you're compromised because of an injury, Mm -hmm. the risk of what's called aspiration pneumonia, where fluids go down into your lungs, increases dramatically. And that can be a very serious condition for people that are compromised immunologically or, or otherwise. Well, wouldn't you know it? Most hospital beds don't have inclinometers. You can't tell what degree it is. You have to sort of eyeball it. Hmm. A doc at Partners, uh, one of the Partners Healthcare Institutions came up with this idea to create an inclinometer that was sort of a, a little uh, weight on a string that hung on the side of a bed and it had a red and a green zone. And when it was centered between the two, the bed was perfectly aligned. Hmm. Now, this doc had a lot better things to do than <laughs> figure out how to build inclinometers for all the beds at, uh, at the Partners Healthcare Hospitals. Luckily, they had this innovation zone. So he went to the innovation zone. He said, hey, look, folks, I've got this idea. I have no time to do anything with this. Could you take it and do something with it? So here we have that separation between idea and innovation. The doc's role was do what docs do. Care for your patients. If you have an idea, though, what do you do with it? Well, to create value, you give it to someone else in the organization that can actually not steal it, but build on it. And if you want Mm. to continue being part of that, idea, you can continue being part of that idea as it evolves. And in this case, they use it as their I- iconic example because here's a situation where the value was so small in terms of the idea that it could easily have been brushed aside. Right. But it had enormous impact when it was turned into an innovation. And when the, the innovation zone and Partners Healthcare actually took it built it out, prototyped it, start putting it on beds, doing trials to see uh, whether it in fact did have an impact on the patient's health and, and well-being. And that's the heavy lifting I talked about earlier. They did that heavy lifting. And most companies don't have that kind of a function with which to take the idea and actually turn it into some, some measurable, uh, measurable value. That's the process. That function is the process. If you do that over and over and over again, over a period of two, three, five, ten years, you do create an innovation process. And it's not reliant on a bolt of lightning striking. It's reliant on the day-to-day ideas that people have across the company that have no other place to go.
0: I love your examples because I think that's exactly what employers are looking for and specific examples of how it worked or how they utilized, as you said, this sort of compartmentalized idea. And I think that is really what our listeners are looking for. We're getting a little low on time here, but I do want to ask about this idea of Challenging conventional wisdom. I know again that's something probably a lot of people hear, but I wanted to bring up the example you had in an article because I thought it was it was really fascinating for me. And that was the idea of the Roomba. Of course, that's the automatic machine that, that vacuums up for you. And the, the idea was that the you know the organization thought not how do we vacuum better. But how can we vacuum, basically, without vacuuming at all? And I thought that was a great picture to kind of put in people's minds as far as that challenging of conventional wisdom. So do you have any tips to help employers get to that point where they can look, I don't even want to say outside the box, because that sounds so cheesy, but just have this completely different perspective?
1: Well, first of all, I think you know, we all live within a box. We have to. We're organizations. We're measured based on our profitability, based on our success. Sure. There are metrics in place. So the box has dimensions. So when you step out of the box, you're only stepping into another box. So the question <laughs> is the question is, are you in the right box? And what iRobot did with the Roomba is it said, look, you know, the box is defined based on these parameters. How long does it take to vacuum? How heavy is the vacuum? Can you easily manipulate it? Does it turn and swivel? Well, wait a minute what if those weren't the metrics of the box? What if we define a whole other set of metrics Mm. for the box? That's what iRobot did. And the new set of metrics didn't involve a user. It involved just the machine itself. So that's what I find fascinating is when people step out of the box and define an entirely new box based on new parameters. That's what Apple did with the iPod and with the iPhone. That's what every great innovator does. Before Apple, it's what Sony did with the Walkman. You define a new set of values on which the consumer will make uh, his or her decision. And I think that's the ultimate success of innovation is that it changes the values by which we measure the world around us and by which we measure our own success at the end of the day. Uh, But it's not magic, right? It's process. It's heavy lifting. And it gets very, very tactical. And that's what I want people to focus on is that whatever great you know, metaphors box or whatever we use to define this, it's tactical. It has to be tactical at the end of the day if you're going to actually do something with the idea and turn it into some real value.
0: I did want to ask you in the last 30 seconds, if you were talking to a company right now, what would you tell them is the important first key step they need to take to really step up their actual innovation versus this idea of uh, the magic pill, so to speak?
1: The first thing to do is to seriously consider putting a process in place by which you can take the ideas, vet them, and then start to bet on them to separate, as, as I say, separate the, uh, the flowers from the weeds. Uh, if you don't have that process in place outside of R&D, you're at a severe disadvantage, and it's very unlikely that you will innovate in a significant way.
0: Tom, thank you very much for coming on, sharing all of your insights. I definitely think the listeners can take a lot from our conversation today, and hopefully they can improve upon those innovations. So thanks a lot for coming on the show.
1: Tim, thank you. It was my pleasure.
0: And that will wrap it up for us here on Management Decisions. Again, we've been talking with Tom Koulopoulos. He is the founder of the Delphi Group, as well as the author of The Gen Z Effect. If you want to find out more about him, you can go to tkspeaks.com and find some more information about what Tom has to offer. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can send us an email to ljnradio at localjobnetwork.com or find us on Twitter at the LJN. For everyone here at LJN Radio, I'm your host, Tim Muma. Take care, everybody.